0: welcome 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 brace yourself for a mind-bending journey because this is the mind of sandy as always i'm your trusted navigator your host richard the mystic maestro it is my pleasure to welcome our esteemed guest known for her beauty and intellect the world over ladies and gentlemen countess elizabeth Bathory.
1: charmed i'm sure
0: before we start i have to say your skin looks absolutely flawless by the way
1: oh I thank you as a countess i've always believed in maintaining an appearance befitting of my station I take great pride in preserving it through various means available to me. Natural ingredients are really the best for skin care. I've used varying herbs, blood, plant oils, and other ointments.
0: Well, it's doing great. Wait, did you just say blood? Maybe. So the legends are true?
1: Absolutely not. Ow. Look, I added a little blood for the sheer humor of it all. I just enjoy teasing people about it. An easy way to creep them out. But the fact is those legends don't start till after 100 years I was dead.
0: Um, Can you explain a little bit about the legends you're talking about?
1: Well, the legends say that I was a noble woman with power and influence who used said power to inflict unspeakable harm to others. And yes, I was a nobleman, Noble woman, I'm sorry. I'm so used to being the head of household, and did have the authority to punish servants or those who committed crimes within my estates. However, the extent of the cruelty attributed to me is a fabrication born from fear, jealousy, greed, and the desire to tarnish my family's reputation. The rumors of bathing in blood and seeking eternal youth through heinous acts are nothing more than malicious falsehoods. I would never engage in such gruesome and inhumane practices. I did take pride in my appearance, appearance as any noble woman would and should but the idea of bathing in blood is both preposterous and horrifying. Unfortunately, during my era, women in positions of power were often met with suspicions and fear, especially when they were seen as unconventional or assertive. Being labeled a witch was far too common a label for women who didn't obey.
0: All right, this just got way more interesting. Let's start from the beginning. Before you became famous, before you were a countess.
1: Certainly. I was born on August 7th, 1560, in the Kingdom of Hungary, into the prestigious Bathory family. My birth name was Erzabit Bathory, Hungarian for Elizabeth Bathory. My childhood was spent in the family's estate, where I received an education fitting for a noble woman of my status. I learned various languages, studied literature, and became well-versed in the arts and sciences of the time. As I grew older, I developed a reputation for my intelligence, wit, and strong will. At age 10, I was betrothed to Count Ferenc Nadasti. We were married when I was 15 and he was 19. Ferenc was a prominent soldier and member of the Hungarian nobility. Our marriage brought me the title of Countess and our two families together to make a powerful bond.
0: Tell me more. What was your marriage and life like as a Countess?
1: My husband was actually a renowned military leader and a hero in the wars against the Ottoman Empire, earning him the nickname Black Knight of Hungary. And while our marriage was arranged when we were both very young, as was customary during that era, but it turned out to be a union marked by mutual respect and admiration. For example, due to his military duties, Ferenc spent a considerable amount of time away from home, leading campaigns and defending the borders of Hungary. During these periods of absence, I assumed the role of managing our estates and taking charge of various affairs. The role demanded a high level of competence and decisiveness, which I embraced wholeheartedly. While my husband was away, I sought to maintain an order and ensure the prosperity of our lands and the well-being of our tenants. I was known for my keen financial acumen and I made efforts to improve the economic conditions of our estates. Beyond managing the estates, I was also actively involved in supporting my husband's military endeavors. I provided him with financial assistance to maintain his troops and fortifications, enabling him to continue his successful military campaigns. Our marriage was blessed with several children though not all of them survived into adulthood. Nonetheless, my role as a mother was of great importance to me, and I devoted much of my time caring for educating and surviving offspring. Life as the Countess of Nadasti was both empowering and challenging. I enjoyed a level of freedom and authority that was uncommon for women of my time. In our union, while not without challenges, as many marriage might have, but we stood by each other through thick and thin.
0: Uh, what exactly did he do to earn a nickname quite like Black Knight of Hungary?
1: Well, he was a prominent leader in the conflict between the Kingdom of Hungary and the expanding Ottoman Empire, known as the Long Turkish War, which lasted 1593 to about 1606. This conflict was part of the larger struggle between Christian Europe and the Ottoman Turks, who at that time sought to extend their influence and control over Eastern Europe. Ferenc gained a reputation for his strategic brilliance, courage, skill in combat, and his ability to command troops effectively. You can see where I married him. His dedication to the defense of Hungary earned him the respect and admiration of his contemporaries, as well as fearsome reputation amongst his enemies, particularly due to his reputation for his extreme cruelty against Ottoman prisoners. All of this just earned him the nickname.
0: Was he part of any famous battles?
1: Well, he played a key role in both the Siege of Estragom and defense of Agar, but perhaps most famous, the capture of Papa.
0: What the fuck is that?
1: It was a battle for Papa, a strategic town located in present-day Hungary. As part of the, as part of the larger conf- conflict... I'm so sorry, it's been a few years since I've died. I'm completely <laughs> tongue-tied. Papa became a focal m- point. See, there's what I'm talking about. That's what happens when they stick you in a hole. Papa became a focal point of military operations. Frank was involved in the planning and execution of the capture of Papa. Understand, despite his untimely death, my husband left behind a legacy of military prowess and bravery. He is still remembered as one of Hungary's notable military leaders during a tumultuous era of conflict with the Ottoman Empire.
0: You said untimely death. What exactly happened to him?
1: Oh, it was a heart-wrenching moment in January 1604 when my dear, sweet Frank met his fate You see, even I can't say for certain what took him away from me. The most popular tale goes that he fell ill during a battle, and that night turned into a prolonged and agonizing struggle with the sickness. There were all sorts of whispers and rumors about what might have caused his illness. Some talked of poison, while others pointed fingers at infectious diseases. Some even said he might have been poisoned by political rivals or enemies seeking to harm him. But the truth is, there's no solid evidence to back up any of these theories, leaving the cause of his illness and death shrouded in mystery. It was a time of sorrow and uncertainty, and my heart still aches when I think back to those days. Frank's death left a void in my heart that could just never be filled. His bravery and dedication to our homeland will forever be remembered, and his memory lived on in my heart.
0: I'm sure his death rocked your world,
1: both emotionally and within society. What exactly happened? Losing him was a devastating blow that left me just shattered. He was not only my husband, but also my confidant, my companion of both joy and sorrow. Amid the grief and upheaval, I found myself grappling with the weight of responsibility as I assumed a more prominent role in managing our estates and affairs. With his absence, the responsibility for overseeing our properties and the welfare of our tenants fell upon my shoulders. As I mentioned, I was already familiar with the workings of our estates and had some experience in handling various matters. Now with him gone, I took on the mantle of leadership more directly. I had to make critical decisions, manage finances, and ensure the smooth functioning of our estates. It was a challenging task, but I felt a sense of duty to honor his memory and uphold the legacy he had left behind. Additionally, I continued to support our children. Being a widow with young children presented its own set of challenges, but I was determined to guide them through life and help them become strong and capable individuals.
0: How did people react to you taking over exactly?
1: They were varied to say the least. There was a mix of admiration, curiosity, and in some cases, suspicion. As a woman assuming a more prominent role in managing our estates and affairs, I was breaking with the traditional gender norms at the time. Some individuals within Hungarian society admired my intelligence capabilities and strong leadership qualities. They saw me as a competent and capable ruler who would effectively manage the family's vast properties and make sound decisions. My reputation as the black lady of Katais had already begun to take shape emphasizing my assertiveness and commanding presence. On the other hand, there were those who were not comfortable with the idea of a woman wielding such power and influence. It was uncommon for women to hold positions of authority, especially in matters of property and governance. Some viewed my assertiveness as an affront to traditional gender roles, leading to rumors and gossip about my behaviors and actions, for shame. Keep in mind, my position as a wealthy widow made me an appealing target for various suitors seeking to gain access to my wealth and estates. This further fueled rumors and speculations about my personal life and intentions. As a result, my actions and decisions were often closely scrutinized, and some sought to find fault or ulterior motives in my actions.
0: What earned you the nickname Black Lady of Cachitis? I've not actually heard that one before.
1: It was a mix of a few things, to be honest. Black Lady emphasizes both my assertive nature and my prominence in the local society and the somber and powerful aura I projected as a widow of high standing. The rumors of my involvement in sadistic practices, including torture and murder, started to take shape during this time as well. Some accused me of committing heinous acts against young girls in the area, which further contributed to the dark and infamous aspects of the nickname.
0: Fair, I guess. So earlier you mentioned that you were innocent of those legends and crimes.
1: Look, I won't lie. By your modern standards, my punishments were definitely cruel. But back then, that's just how things were. The rich had everything and the poor had nothing. There was no in between and the laws of the land were clear. Anything I did was the same as any other or countess of the time. The law said as countess, I could murder peasants as I saw fit. It was commonplace because it was believed it curbed rebellion.
0: So why the legends?
1: Well, during my time, Hungary was embroiled in political struggles and various factions sought to undermine their rival's power and reputation. My influential position and the vast wealth associated with my family made me a target for such attacks. Accusations and exaggerations about my actions might've been used as a means to tarnish my family's name and seize our properties. But more as a woman in a position of authority and power, I did not need to bow to others. This might've fueled speculation and fear leading to the creation of stories that emphasize my megalomaniacal and sadistic nature. It isn't uncommon throughout history that when women gain power or take power from others, they are labeled as monsters, heretics, and more often than not, executed. What do you mean? The two examples that come to my mind are Joan of Arc and the infamous Bloody Mary. I'm sorry, Joan of Arc. Ah, oh, I did that girl disgrace. And the infamous Bloody Mary. Oh, she gives me shivers. Okay. Starting with Joan. She believes she heard the voice of God and that he favored the French during the 100-year war which got her labelled as a heretic by the English and eventually executed. But how did the English catch her? The French nobility, seeing how the peasant woman was inspiring their countrymen and the power she was carrying, feared losing their own power. Even the king, Charles VII, who owed much of his legitimacy to her actions, abandoned her.
0: All right, I won't lie, that's fair, but what about Bloody Mary? Didn't she execute, like, 300 people?
1: Indeed, she did. Around 300 Protestants were put to death, and she was given the nickname of Bloody Mary. But what of her father, Henry VIII, or half brother, Edward IV, or her half sister, Elizabeth? What about them? Henry VIII, Mary's father, is said to have executed upwards of 20,000 people during his reign. But he is most famous for leaving Catholicism for the purposes of divorce and executing two of his wives. Edward IV, Mary's predecessor, he sanctioned the suppression of the Prayer Book Rebellion resulting in the deaths of 5,500 Catholics. Elizabeth I, her successor, burned five Anabaptists at the stake during her 45-year reign, ordered the executions of around 800 Catholic rebels implicated in the North Earl's Revolt of 1569, and had at least 183 Catholics, the majority of whom were Jesuit missionaries, Hanged, drawn, and quartered as traitors, but none of them had the reputation of a monster. That's true, actually, exactly. It all stems from the fact mary Mary the first was Catholic, and those in power were Protestant.
0: That's fucked up.
1: tis the life of a woman living throughout history
0: and while what you say is undoubtedly true, we aren't talking about you. How do you explain your legends? Who gained from these legends?
1: Oh, get ready for my tale. The true tale, the downfall, the so-called blood countess. Oh, I'm ready. Now at the age of 44, having proficiently managed the household and estates throughout all the time Frank was away at war, I found myself considering the prospect of continuing without the need for remarriage. My competence in overseeing our combined holdings, which included both the Bathory lands from my dowry and the Nadacity properties acquired through my marriage, left me with much more extensive and prestigious properties than anyone else in the region. But as they say, with great power comes great risk. The moment I became a widow, it seemed that a host of ambitious men set their sights on seizing portions of my valuable properties, eager to capitalize on the perceived vulnerability of a powerful woman without her husband.
0: Sounds a lot like the Odyssey. God, men are gross, power hungry men even more so.
1: Like a cockroach mixed with a leech
0: truth but we're getting off topic please keep going
1: the ringleader of my downfall was none other than that george Torzo, a man with a trail of ruined nobles left in his wake many of whose positions and property he himself had seized you see i had mentioned how the law allowed me to punish servants without consequence which sadly was the norm of our time but instead of accusing me of the common practice Torzo concocted a false claim that i was committing heinous acts on not on peasant girls, but on wealthy ones. Now, let me be clear. Mistreatment of servant girls did happen in my home as was prevalent throughout Hungary. However, his accusations of me harming wealthy girls were baseless. I did welcome young noble women into my care, offering them education and training similar to what I received as a teenager, but never ever did I harm them in any way. But truth mattered little in the face of this sham. Torzo knew he couldn't prove his murder accusation against me, considering my wealth and influence. So he resorted to underhanded tactics, storming into my home and arresting me, claiming to catch me in the act of murdering a young woman. It was a way to put me under arrest and deny me the chance to inf- sorry to attend my own trial. I'm just so shocked and defend myself. Unfortunately, it wasn't the first time he had used such manipulative methods.
0: So what happened?
1: Upon my arrest in 1610, along with the apprehension of four of my servants, Catelyn Benaca, Helen Jo, Dorothy Sentes, and Fixo, Torzo commenced a, commenced a series of interrogations. The servants collectively mentioned that approximately 30 to 50 young women had passed away during the years they served me. However, it's crucial to understand that such losses were not uncommon in those times, given the prevalence of plagues and poor health, particularly among peasants. As for the allegations of cruelty towards the young women, it seemed that the blame primarily fell on Helena and Dorothy, who were responsible for overseeing the female servants and implementing punishments. Catalan asserted that she had refused to partake in some of the harsher practices, which then led to her own punishment at the hands of the other two. Now, during this investigation, it's essential to consider two critical facts. Firstly, over 300 witnesses testified against me, many of whom had familiar or marital connection to George de
0: That doesn't seem suspicious at all.
1: Right? But the second crucial fact to be considered during the investigation revolves around the contradictory evidence provided by my servants. What's important to note is that this conflicting testimony came to light only after they had been subjected to torture, an unfortunate truth concealed from the records because Torozo submitted his report to the king. In the historical context of that time, it was highly unusual for servants to be allowed to testify at all, let alone against their employer. So the fact that they were permitted to do so in my case raises questions about the circumstances and motivations behind their testimonies. Many of the accusations put forth by the witnesses were indeed absurd and baseless. One witness claimed to have heard from a friend that I had a list of 650 people I had allegedly murdered, while another accused me of practicing witchcraft. Then there was the amusing accusation that I was plotting to poison the king and even Torzo himself. However, no evidence was ever presented to substantiate these wild claims.
0: That doesn't seem fair.
1: Despite the Hungarian king's repeated request for a new trial to allow me to defend myself, Torzo never granted it. Instead, he and my male relatives divided my wealth and lands amongst themselves. Meanwhile, I was confined to a room, bricked in with no door, only a small opening through which they slid plates of food. Torzo ensured that my castle remained operational during my arrest to my death and beyond. How do you do that? By moving in.
0: Oh, that's, that's fucking icky.
1: They were incredibly icky people, even for the time. Do you want to know the worst part about him?
0: I literally always do.
1: Before dying, my beloved asked someone he trusted to protect his heirs and widow. That name was George Torzo. And not only did he do what he did to me, he even tried to assassinate my cousin, Gabriel Bathory, who was Prince of Wallachia at the time.
0: He kind of reminds me of the Thenardier's from Les Miserables, if they had money and power. But how did he even know your household had a reputation for being cruel to young servants?
1: There were accusations of it made by a Lutheran minister by the name of Isvan Magyar. They went nowhere.
0: If what you're saying is true, then I'm curious. When do the legends start about you bathing in blood?
1: More than a century after my death, a man named Laszlo Turokse, who was a Jesuit, recounted a story about me. For the first time, he introduced a detail of me allegedly bathing in the blood of my murder victims. Funny how the claim of bloodbathing did not surface at all during the three testimonials given by 300 witnesses, all of whom were actively defaming me. The account provided by Torexi seems to have been influenced by his religious background and the desire to portray me, a Protestant, as a villain. I'm sorry. Ugh, it is what it is. But do you know what makes all of this so much worse? What's that? I'm in the Guinness World Record book for the most prolific woman serial killer slash mass murderer of all time, yet based entirely on lies and the greed of one insignificant man, a man who turned me into a household name while he was destined to be buried in history books.
0: Mm, that must be really hard. I'm really sorry.
1: It's fine. Just sad.
0: Off-topic question.
1: Are you related to Vlad Tepes? Um, no.
0: Damn, there's a lot of rumors about that.
1: Well, I am not, though George W. Bush, John Kerry, and Charles III are all related to him.
0: I'm sorry, what did you, are you saying that the current King of England is related to Vlad de and so is a former U.S. President and former Secretary of State?
1: That's right, Charles is actually a direct descendant.
0: That's, that's weird and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Monarchies are gross. Alright Countess Bathory. 3, that's all I have. Do you have anything else to say?
1: Fuck Giorgio Torzo.
0: That's fair. And with that, we're out of here. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to smash that follow button and tell all your friends. Ben, us off. Sign us off. Good. All.